when the time comes, who'll create a care plan for you or your loved one? And who'll be in charge of implementing said plan? Moving your mom or your dad or yourself isn't just about moving things from one place to another. It is much more complicated than that, as are so many things having to do with later life. How to move your mom and still be on speaking terms afterward provides in-depth conversations with professionals, older adults, and their family members who share their stories with warmth, understanding, and humor. I'm your host, Marty Stevens-Hebner, and here you'll find answers to many of your questions, as well as different perspectives that I hope will inform and inspire you. Today, I get to talk to a dear friend and colleague, Brenda Shorkin of Shorkin Care Management. Hello, Brenda. Thank you for being with me. Hi, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Let me tell you a little bit about Brenda. Brenda's worked with many hospital and community organizations, including Hunting Hospital's Senior Care Network. She studied rehabilitation psychology. I'm going to ask you about that, Brenda. And she's also a member of the Aging Life Care Association. She is an an incredibly strong advocate for her clients. I have witnessed it because we've shared clients together. And she uh, focuses on maximizing her clients' independence and autonomy while still ensuring their safety and well-being, which is so important. So, Brenda, what's your favorite story about your grandparents? Probably my favorite story is the one about my grandmother, who was a bit of a witch. (laughs) <laughs> and she had reasons. To, I mean, she had a difficult life. She had many reasons to be a witch. But once she got dementia, she forgot that she was a nasty person. Mm. And she, so this was when I was a teenager. Every Saturday, she and my grandfather would come over to my parents for lunch. And every Saturday, she would get ice cream for dessert. And every Saturday, her eyes would light up like a little girl. Ice cream, my favorite dessert. Mm-hmm. And that was something that taught me at a very young age that people who have cognitive impairment can actually sometimes enjoy things more when they're sick than when they were well, which is a huge paradox. Yeah, I had a friend whose father-in-law came down with dementia and beforehand, he was like your grandmother. And then afterward, he had a smile on his face. She she forgot that she had a chip on her shoulder. She forgot that her life had been awful and she became really nice. And in her way, she started enjoying it, especially the ice cream. I'm with her. So I do want to ask you, what is rehabilitation psychology? I've never heard of that before. I was actually brainwashed during my studies to look at a person wherever they are. If they've lost a leg, if they've got bad memory, if they have terminal cancer, whatever bad thing has happened to them, what can we do right now today to improve things? Not to cure, but to improve things and make life tolerable. Yeah, just so that they too, like grandmother, can enjoy the parts of life that they're able to mm-hmm. enjoy. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the focus of your profession and of your own personal work. Because I don't think a lot of people understand the difference between a caregiver and a care manager. Very different. And I should actually call myself an aging life care professional rather than a care manager, because every, almost everyone is calling themselves a care manager now. Um, is that we are a unique profession where we are people who are trained in a variety of backgrounds. With me, it's psychology. Other people, it can be social work, nursing, occupational therapy, physical therapy, gerontology. 
and we're trained to work in a holistic fashion with people. Most of us work with older people, but I, I, for example, also work with people with special needs, developmental disabilities. We are the person who oversees and organizes. I don't do hands-on care. I make sure that the family or the person has a plan and looking at the big picture, providing the support, whatever it is. I used to joke, oh, I can even find a dog walker. But yeah, then the next day I had to find a dog walker because I never know. You know someone Very like true. yourself, a senior move manager, a, a professional organizer, an attorney, a CPA, a caregiver. So we do many different things and each of us has a slightly different, uh, I would say, take on how we do our work but it's not it's not the hands-on work it's the overseeing and the coordinating and I, and I really pride myself at pulling together really good teams so yes and yes and I'm honored to often be among them so thank you for that because you're very superb about what you do with a caregiver they're really the ones directly administering the care day after day is that mm -hmm. correct and yes. as a care manager you really you're really the quarterback or the coach oversee mm -hmm. it's really the coach overseeing everything and the players on well, the field the caregivers it depends because sometimes I'm the coach but sometimes I'm I'm the coordinator or the overseer mm -hmm. because I have clients where literally my role is providing the family with some direction and some um, advice and then I have clients where literally I am the one that knows how is this person what time did they wake up this morning did they take a shower? How much did they eat? Did they take so their medications? Did they take their medication going with them to the doctor? And I also occasionally do uh, assessments for the court. And that's the one that's the most fun. Because oh, why is that? Because then I can be completely objective. I don't have to be nice to anyone. I am only making recommendations that are in the best interest of the client. And okay. I don't mind if the, and, and if both sides get upset with me, I know that I'm doing the right thing. We all love the easy jobs, but you know, frequently, look, when, when families get along really well, miraculously, mm -hmm. they don't need us because they can take care of the situation on their own. They have enough people, people live nearby. Um, it, so it's no wonder that we often get the problem cases. But, but, but I, I think in a way, the clients that give me the most um, satisfaction are the ones where maybe I only meet them once. And maybe I, only, I don't even meet the older person or the person with the special needs. I meet with the people involved, the daughter, the son, the spouse, the neighbor, the cousin. We all meet together. And since COVID, I've been doing a lot more on Zoom. I help them come together and think in one direction. And then they don't need me anymore. They couldn't manage before because everyone was going off in a different direction with, with unrealistic expectations or a lot of pent-up frustration with each other and, and good families. Well, because in that case, you're probably a bit of a referee, but you're also the professor teaching them and the guide, the shepherd, mm -hmm. teaching them about what they need to do. It's so important that people be heard during these times, especially when it comes to their fears and uh, hopefully not too much angry stuff, but... They need to be heard. It's also it's also a lot of frustration between siblings. I mean, you, I, I learned from you to talk about the, your phrase, the designated adult, right? <laughs> the DA, right. The designated there's adult. always one kid who's in charge, whether they want to be or not. And then the other kids are upset with them by definition. And yeah. a lot of that is just hot air. And if it's clarified, people can move forward. I also want to add in most of these situations, the good daughter isn't so good and the evil daughter isn't so evil. 
People have all kinds of motivations. What do you wish people knew about what you do? That I can help people six months, two years, 10 years before the disaster. You don't have to wait for a horrendous crisis to get help. And if you yourself are planning, then this will help your adult children or the other people who are your spouse to then, when you need help, know what to do. They're completely hit by fear and don't know what to do about it. It's not just fear. If someone is in the hospital and has used up all their savings and is, is at the end of their reverse mortgage, and now what are we going to do with them? Yeah. We are probably five years too late for something reasonable. I'm not saying there isn't some kind of solution, but the good solution is, is, is gone. So it's, it's easier to attain and find a good solution if you plan ahead. You know, not only getting your estate plan and your trust, you're going to hear me say that in practically every episode, get all your healthcare directive, get all that done now, no matter, so long as you're an adult, get it done. Also be aware that if you haven't planned, it's going to be so hard on your family. And especially you're talking about the finances. People often have to scramble to pull together any, anything. And it's, in my opinion, obscene that people have to do GoFundMe pages to keep people alive, but that's the state of our healthcare system here. It's so important to have that together and to name a really competent DA, uh, designated adult as your uh, trustee, as your executor, uh, power of attorney. Make sure it's somebody who's really competent and who you talk to about it, talk them through it. Because especially with an executor, somebody dies. And suddenly the executor is the CEO of the whole estate. I had a client recently where I sat with his wife and his daughter and we read through his advanced healthcare directive. And I was trying to help the wife understand what his wishes were, because right now he wasn't at a point where he could express what his wishes were. And she understood what was written, something completely opposite to what the daughter understood, because it wasn't... Oh. Really, and so what was what is written isn't so important. What's important is is when I started having the conversation with her. Well, what would he want right now? Mm -hmm. Would he want a feeding tube? Would he want to go to a nursing home for rehab? Would he want to go home? Which which of these are we talking about right now? Yeah. Let's say someone who's ninety two. I mean, I have a client like that right now. The client is ninety two who has kidney failure and heart issues and let's add diabetes for fun and then they get pneumonia mm. so what do you do there are people who just choose to stay home and let this take its course there are people who know will go to hospital and want to be treated but what if they don't get better you can do a lot of things you can you can put them on a ventilator you can start with tube feeding you can do a bunch of things and if it's someone who it's it's and it's very similar to what's been happening with people who've had COVID, of course, people who are younger and stronger, it might be worth it. There was an article recently about the dangers with drug interactions. Is mm -hmm. that something you watch out for? Of course. So I'm not a, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor, but I certainly know how to look at the medications. It's as if there's some medications there that maybe should not be taken together. They don't get along very well. Yes. They might, I mean, again, sometimes there's a very good reason for a person to have these, these medications. It's not necessarily wrong. 
But then the doctor needs to say explicitly, the reason why they're taking these two medications is because we don't have any other option. So first of all, I would go with primary care physician. And if they're able to do the reconciliation of the drugs, then it's fine. But you can obviously go to the just go to the regular pharmacist or if you need more of an in-depth consult, especially if it's if it's complex medications, mm-hmm. it might be a geriatric pharmacist, a geriatric psychiatrist, someone who can really look at the drugs and at the interactions. Um, and understand them. Yeah. And no one, it's really a time to be concerned about that. I haven't emphasized yet talking about all the bad stuff. I like to help families sort out the, the bad stuff come to sort of a a point where people are doing okay and then look at quality of life. So then we start weighing, staying at home, moving somewhere, taking 20 meds or taking three meds, going back to the hospital for every little exacerbation of their COPD or deciding to maybe be at home on palliative or hospice care. What do you feel is distinctive about your service? Um... Well, first of all, I advocate really strongly for my clients. Someone said to me the other day that I don't let people push me around. You don't. <laughs> so they think they might because you had that wonderful British accent. And I'm sure people <laughs> just think, oh, she'll be a pushover. Little do they know you are so, a powerful advocate. So, so what I say to people when I come in to, to a situation, let's say the son or the daughters ask me to meet with their parents. I say to them, you have to understand, obviously I'm taking your lives and your abilities into account. I'm not mm-hmm. going to recommend things you, you can't do, but I'm advocating first and foremost for your mother. And if you want your mother to go into an assisted living because you can't sleep, that's not a reason. The point here is, is it safe for your mother to live in her own home? And it, does she have the quality of life there? Maybe she really does need to move. And many people, and we saw this a lot during COVID, became so lonely and isolated. And yeah, which is the great in, contributor to dementia, as we know. And, and, and depression and just general decline. I also think it's very important, if someone is thinking of moving, that they move early enough. If there's someone in their 70s who's saying, I don't know if we want to move into, into, into an independent living uh, community or not, don't, don't wait till it's too late. Because don't wait till you fall and break a hip. Don't be, wait for the heart attack. Because those ind- the independent places work for people when you've already built community. If mm. you're living in your home and your friends have moved away and your friends are dying or just getting older and you feel that you need more community, that's the time to move and create a new community. People make a whole new batch of friends. There are all these wonderful activities. Yeah. I, I had a client, for example, who, who moved in when she was very, I would say, young and, and vibrant. She, she, had a, she, she started a, a movie group and they played bridge every week and a bunch of things. And then she started having issues. But because she had friends, her friends made the effort. They'd come to the, to the, to the room to visit her. They wouldn't wait for her to come to the to bridge. Mm-hmm. They, they'd, they, they'd come and, and encourage her to come out and do things with them. It's, it's interesting, too, because nobody has to get in their car and drive to you. You're up mm-hmm. one floor via the elevator or you're, you know, on the other side of the building. So it's possible to just walk there mm-hmm. and, and check on your friends. And a lot of friends do check on each other. It's really quite lovely. It but, really but of is. Course, I mean, moving into one of these communities is very much like going to college. It has to be the right fit. It's like so, the college dorm. And that's where somebody like Sue Pomerantz, who was in her first episode, definitely. does placement. That she knows all the personalities of the different communities and what a good fit for the client would be, which mm-hmm. is so important. 
right? You're living there. You're living there. It's your home. So make sure it feels like a good neighborhood for you. And, and that's, of course, something to take into consideration if you stay in your own home and if your neighborhood is changing. If you lived on the street with people and you all brought up your kids together and everybody's staying and basically aging in place together, it can be a really good thing. But if there's been this huge turnover and you're the matriarch of the street and no one talks to you, the important point for me is there's no hard and fast rules. You are very adept at putting great teams together mm-hmm. here. When it came time where things were happening with your parents back in Israel, did you put teams together there to take care of them? How'd you go about that? Well, my father died the week I turned 30. So mm. he was very sick for most of my 20s. And my mother, who was a doctor, was the one who actually pulled together the care that she needed. And I learned a lot from her, including putting together hospice for him before there was even such a thing as hospice. Cool. So that's my dad. When my mother started having problems in her late 80s, mm-hmm. we had the whole dynamic between me and my brother that you have a lot of the time between a long distance caregiver and a local caregiver. Mm, And of course, I'm the oldest sister and I'm the expert and he's the little brother who never listened anyway. And I ran away and left him holding the baby, et cetera, et cetera. And that you have to work with that and you have to be aware of it. Yeah. I managed to convince him to hire a care manager like myself because he was calling me about every two months. Okay, I'm going to pay for a ticket. You have to come. And I would say, I can't solve the problems in a week or two weeks. You need someone to help you. And he finally. I mean, the best thing we did was to hire the care manager who brought in the caregivers and helped my brother oversee things. And then she was also someone that I could communicate with as much as I needed to and and, and actually provided her with a lot of training. So I was telling her what to do with my mother, but it wasn't me with my mother. Right. That makes a big difference. And families, the friendliest of families still butt heads over things like that. And so they went to a really important medical appointment about whether she should have surgery, like a big deal. And they went in, my brother, my mother, the care manager, and I was on the phone. And I thought it went really well. I mean, they asked him the doctor questions. They got all the pros and cons. As they're walking out, my brother still has his phone on. And I hear my mother say, I'm never going to an appointment with you again. You talked over me. You didn't let me ask questions. Next time I'm going to Rachel, the care manager. So I'm starting to dance here because that's what we want as a family. We want our parent to feel that they have an advocate and who listens to them and not these children. I mean, I changed your diapers. Why would I listen to you? (laughs) And, and, and And there's all the buttons that they know to press so that we then behave like seven year olds with them. Yeah. And when you have the care manager in between, suddenly things can go much easier. Yeah. The neutral, the somewhat neutral third party, so to speak. Yeah, all of us who are in professions related to the care of older adults in later life, we often become that neutral third party who comes in and people will listen to. My father used to say, oh no, oh no, to everything I said. And then somebody else would say it. Oh, really? Ah. So I, I also say to families, don't roll your eyes and say, oh mom, just say, oh, what a wonderful idea. And I know that you've asked, you've asked them to do this for the past five years. But I'm coming in from the outside as a professional, and they're going to listen to me. So just thank your lucky stars that they're listening. And if you start rolling your eyes and getting upset, then we're done, and then we're not going to be able to do it. Yep. 
Uh, so yeah. I almost do coaching with you know, with with the adult children and and with the spouses how to get things done the way you want them to be done. Yeah, yeah, and that need to be done. So I'm imagining that's kind of the toughest part of your job is is setting up the plan and getting everyone involved to respect that plan. Yeah, well, the the only difficult clients are the ones where the people who have the responsibility don't follow through. So I've never had a client I don't like, even the one who cursed me and told me to get out of his house. I thought I, I understood why he was upset with me. I didn't take it personally. But when the when it's the family member or the family friend or whoever it is who has the legal authority to take care of them and they just don't follow through, those are the ones that I have a hard time with. Yeah, they are very difficult. So what are some reasons why clients or their families don't listen to your advice? What, or what reasons do they give? Oh, I don't upset my dad. Oh, yes. Um, I know, well, yeah, I think it's a good idea, but I think I know my mom better than I know, than you do. But you don't know how to take care of her better and understand yeah. the medical yeah. jargon and all that. You well, end up kind of, I imagine, acting as kind of a translator for yeah. all the medical jargon and that sort of thing. But so, some of it is people are just overwhelmed. It's just too much. But they just, they, they, or they've been doing it for so long, they can't, they're just burnt out. And, and that I completely understand. But the one that, that concerns me, and it seems to be more typical in families where the, perhaps there was a history of abuse or at least some kind of bullying or very authoritarian behavior by a parent. The kids can't make the switch between dad who was impossible before and dad who's impossible now. It was the same, I can give the example of my own mother. My brother at one point got so sick of, of her behavior that he said to her, I don't wanna be your POA for finances anymore. So I was ready to kill him, that's a different issue. But why did he get to that point? And let me just point out, I'm just gonna sure. point out that POA for finances is, is somebody who has the power of attorney. Has the power of attorney. The person who oh, has, well, he was the one who was overseeing her finances. Yeah, thank you. She, sorry, she was declining and her, she was losing her language. Mm. What she was trying to say to him, I think is, I want to be sure there's enough money in my account. Mm -hmm. What he understood is you don't trust me with, with handling the money. Because he was very stressed and overwhelmed. And so their family, get, and their family. He's assuming yeah, and, his mother is yeah. criticizing him. And you see that in a lot of cases. I mean, not that my brother ever abused my mother, he didn't. But you Basically, right. do yeah. get to the point where they abuse family members, not because they're evil, but because they're at the end of their tether and don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And especially with clients who have advanced dementia, that can be so frustrating. And it's not the person's fault who has dementia, it's the disease. And that mm -hmm. is so difficult. I wanted to ask you, what questions should people ask professionals like you as they consider working with you or someone in your profession? So first of all, are you comfortable with them? I would just, first of all, just chat to them and see whether this is someone whose personality is right for you. That's the most important. They're going to be involved in some intimate things in you and your family's life. Second of all, of course, what is the background? How do they work with their clients? How do they communicate with the families? What is their, what are their uh, professional experience? Do they know what they're talking about? 
I like to recommend people who are members of my national association. That's the Aging Life Care Association. Mm-hmm. There's a lookup by zip code on the website where you can find uh, aging life care professionals. You can also see whether they are certified or not. And if they're certified, that means that, that, that they're one level higher of experience and have you know, been through some, uh, some exams. Number three, also, nobody asks about liability insurance. They should. I would say if the person does not have liability insurance, don't work with them. Cyber insurance for the same reason, in case any of my uh, oh. information is hacked. And just the fact that I have cyber insurance means that I understand that there's a risk. And that shows that I'm taking things more seriously than maybe some other people. So and, that, you know, with cyber insurance that you're protecting their very private information. And their privacy as well. That I'm taking yes. it seriously. Yeah. So important. You know, I'm wondering, because that makes me think about elder abuse and the different forms it takes. Do you encounter that? And what do you do about when you do? Um, first of all, if I'm working with a family, people who are looking to the future, I help them set up things to protect themselves from a lot mm-hmm. of things. Make sure that, that they've been to the right attorney, that they have their documents in order. They have someone who's keeping it, even if they're completely independent, someone else is checking on their on their accounts to make sure that there's no fraud in their bank accounts, uh, putting together a lot of things to make sure that as a person gets older and perhaps they're declining in their cognitive abilities, someone is, is just helping to keep an eye on them. And then mm-hmm. I often get referrals of very messy situations where someone is taking advantage of a person. Uh, I rarely work with awful physical abuse cases. It's just too difficult for me. There's a very good care managers who will do that. With me, it's more the undue influence, the money disappearing, the son buying uh, a brand new car because he has to, with mother's money, because he has to drive mother to the doctor once a month. Those kind of situations. And sometimes it's very subtle. And as some of it is is not on purpose. Can you give me an example? You're talking about subtle. What what do you mean by that? Well, for example, uh, a, a, someone who thinks that it's quite okay to buy themselves a new car with mum's mm-hmm. money because they occasionally drive her to the doctor or, or take her to lunch. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also the people who are getting to, to the end of their tether and are just very impatient and can just shove or push. And then there's there's the insidious, nasty, undue influence where someone slowly weasels their way into a person's life and takes over. And it can be a family member or it can be a stranger or it can be a caregiver or it can be a neighbor. And those yeah. cases are, are difficult. They can get very divisive very quickly, unfortunately. But it's usually, not in every single case, it's usually when a person has either be isolated themselves or been isolated. Or if you're part of a village, if you're part of a group of people, if there are a number of people looking out for you, it's less likely these things will happen. Yeah, my dad had a whole cadre of friends who would come mm-hmm. in and check in with them and hang out with them, which was really lovely back in Buffalo. Yeah, but that's, but it's rare ago. these days with everybody moving around and leaving. And one, especially in Los Angeles, yeah, which is where we are. It's a very different dynamic. That's such important information. And I, all the information, Brenda, you've given is so remarkable and helpful. And I just really want to thank you for being here and sharing your extraordinary knowledge and experience with me and everybody. I just hope I have the energy to advocate for people for, for as long as I can. And thank you, Marty. It's been a, a true pleasure. 
Thank you so much for listening to How to Move Your Mom and still be on speaking terms afterward. Please visit howtomoveyourmom.com for more information about this episode and for additional podcast episodes featuring other extraordinary guests and conversations. Until next time, this is your very grateful host, Marty Stevens-Hebner.